For those of you who are joining us perhaps for the first time this summer, we've been going through the book of James, a book found in the New Testament, a book that reminds us that our faith isn't something that's relegated just to something that we believe or even something that we passionately are committed to, something deep in our heart, but it works out, faith works in all of life. It hits the street, so to speak, and he reminds us in chapter one that faith works when times are tough. Helps us to persevere, to hang on to God, and allow God to use a trial actually to develop more of Christ in us. Faith works in temptation to resist it. Faith works when we don't just hear the word of God, but when we hear it and do the word of God. In chapter 2, faith works in our relationships. It, it works out so that there's no favoritism in our life, but we actually treat each other as the scripture calls us to, loving our neighbor as ourself. Faith works in chapter 2 as it shows up in good works. Remember, faith without works is dead. Faith works as it shows itself in good works. And the good works that James is talking about is the good works of loving God with all of our heart. So like Abraham, we believe his promises, we obey his commands, and we won't hold anything back from God, even our most precious possession, the son of the promise. But the good works also show up as we love our neighbor as ourself. So that when we see a friend, a neighbor in need, we're willing to reach out and meet their need. Faith works. Faith works not just through these good works, but in chapter 3, he reminds us, faith works right here, right in the old kisser, through good words. These powerful words, these little things, like a spark that can bring so much damage like a forest fire. These words, the Bible says, has the power of life and death. And we are reminded that faith works as we allow God to give us a clean heart and keep purifying our hearts so that what flows from the heart will be words that grace people's lives, that give life, that give hope, that build up. And then last week, as we were finishing out chapter 3, we saw that faith works in the midst of relationships that are troubled. And that's kind of the same theme we're picking, on, picking up on this morning in chapter 4. So grab your Bibles, and we're going to get into uh, to James chapter 4. You'll find it on page 855. Now, a couple things before we get into the text. Last week, James says, faith works in conflict as our faith drives us to the wisdom of God that makes us people who live in humility so that we're living the good life that pursues peace. And he asks the question, who's the wise person? And he describes the wise person as a person who pursues peace. Uh, This week, he's going to ask a different question. He's going to ask the question, why do we fight? Uh, You ever wonder about that? I, I don't know what we fought about this week. But maybe it was with mom and dad. Maybe it had to do with the curfew or movie we wanted to see or the car we wanted to use or the state of our room, which doesn't meet their standards. I don't know what the fights were going on in your neighborhood or or on the field if you were in some kind of a training camp. I I don't know what they were like in, in your work. I don't know what they were like in your marriage. But James says, I'm not really concerned about the circumstances of what you fight about, I I want you to think about this maybe for the first time. Why do you fight? 
Why do you fight? Why do we fight? Why do we sometimes have the same fight? Why does that happen? Well, let's see how James goes after it here in James chapter 4 as he gets to the heart of conflict and then graciously gives us the cure. First, though, the heart of conflict, verses 1 through 5. He says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? So the heart of conflict is maybe not what we think it is. It's easy for us to get in a conflict and think what we're fighting about is money. What we're fighting about is, is um, who's keeping the house or the apartment clean? We, we think those are the things we're fighting about. And James says, well, let's just back up here a moment. And, and let me suggest to you, James says, God through James, that the reason we fight in our relationships out here is because there's a battle going on in here. Because there's a battle going on in our very heart. And it's a battle over these desires. These desires. What desires? Well, there's these desires that are good, godly desires. And there are desires that are ungodly desires. There's the things of the world and there's the things of God. And there's a battle going on in our heart. And when we lose the fight in our heart, the fight breaks out in our relationships. That's what he's saying. So he says, I, I want you now to get your eyes off of the circumstances and I want you to get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter are these things called these desires that battle within you. Now he's talked about these desires before. In chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, here's what he said about these sinful desires. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So we remember, that's the same desires. They're deadly. These things kill. And these are the things that move us away from God. God doesn't tempt us, James says. These things come from within our hearts, and here's the battle going on. And this word desire could be something positive, But here, in its context, in most of the New Testament, when this word is used, it's negative. In fact, if you heard the word pronounced in the original language, you'd hear our word hedonist. What is a hedonist? Someone who pursues pleasure to the max. They're addicted to pleasure, so to speak. These desires speak of evil desires where we're out of control for things that are maybe natural appetites, but they've gone awry, or things that are not natural. And the tricky thing with these desires is that the battle is not just between good and bad, good desires and bad desires. But 
But what can happen is we can take a good desire and it can become a controlling desire that ruins us because we've got to have it. What's an example? You want to get married? That's a good thing. It's a great thing. God says God's blessing is on those who are married just like his blessing rests on the gift of singleness. It's a great thing. It's God's plan. He's, he's ordained it. Bring two together. One man, one woman for life. It's not a bad desire. But if you fixate on that desire and cannot find contentment in your life as a single person, guess what? A godly desire has become ungodly in your life as it's now ruling your life and it's ruining your life. The Bible says it's a, it's a noble thing to aspire to be a leader, to be an elder in the church. It's a great thing. Nothing wrong with that desire. But if it doesn't happen and you brood over that it's not happening and do everything you can to get that position and can't believe that you don't and bitterness rests in your heart, it's become a ruling desire that is no longer profitable. God's wired us so that we desire food. It's a good thing. We die without it. But you can see where that desire for food to get a meal to nourish our body can go awry when we turn to be a glutton and can't stop eating, can't stop thinking about food. And on and on these things go. And so it's subtle here, and the focus he goes to is our heart, these desires, and all of a sudden we realize what James is saying is, I thought I had a marriage problem. I thought we had a marriage problem. And we do, because stuff's not right in our marriage. I thought we got a problem with the kids in our relationship with my son or my daughter or my mom or my dad. And and we do. But James is saying, that's a symptom. There's something deeper going on here. Something way deeper. It's a heart problem. In fact, it's a relationship preceding the conflicted relationship. It's all about my relationship with God. And when this thing's not right, these relationships will never be right. So it's a little bit like the, um, like the puddle that you might find in your basement. I mean, some of us saw some pretty big puddles in our basement this summer and are still dealing with that. And it's no laughing matter. It's depressing. It's hard. But let's just say you woke up tomorrow morning and you went downstairs and you're walking in your stocking feet. And all of a sudden, what was that? What was that? Was, There's a puddle right here. So what do you do? Well, you go get a towel or something. You clean up the towel. Uh, you clean up the puddle, right? It's a good thing to do. So you go, ah, that's good. Got that taken care of. Go down the next day and you find out, hey, there's a puddle still over here. What happened? I cleaned that up yesterday. And if you did a week of cleaning up the puddle without ever looking around like, where's this coming from? We'd all say you lost it, man. You got to get in touch with reality. The reason there's a puddle on the floor is not because there's a puddle on the floor, because there's a leak. You better find the leak. And for a lot of our life, especially in our marriages, we just keep mopping up puddles. You go, why does that puddle keep coming back? Why does it keep getting my socks wet? And, and, and the two of us, we get down there with our towels. We're mopping it up, trying to get it up. We go, how come it keeps coming back? Because there's a leak. And James says the leak is in our heart. The reason we've got conflict on the outside is because there's a battle waging on the inside. Until we win the battle in our heart, we'll never find peace in our homes. That's what James is saying. It's exactly what he's saying. 
So where have you been focusing? The puddle or on the leak? James goes on to say, in verse 2 here, you don't have because you don't ask. Pray to God, who's the giver of every good and perfect gift, he said in chapter 1, the one who gives generously to those who ask. You pray to God, and he'll give you the things that you want. He says, you don't have what you want because you're, you're asking for the wrong things. You're finding it, trying to find it in the wrong places. You're only going to find the things you really long for, true happiness in God. The psalmist says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you're trying to, you're, you're chasing down the spam. Remember that? You're, you're settling for spam when God's got Chateaubriand for you. And you're never going to be happy with spam. You've got to have what God serves up, which is, a, which is, well, you may be happy with spam, but not forever. It's God's stuff that satisfies forever. And so he says, you don't have the things you're longing for in your life because you don't pray. And he anticipates, yeah, we do. James, we pray, man. We're praying a lot these days. We're getting nailed. We're being persecuted. We're praying all the time. He says, yeah, and as it works out in these relationships and these conflicts you have, yeah, you're praying. You're praying, all right. But you're praying for the wrong things. You're praying for your pleasure. You're praying for your happiness. You're praying that you'd be proved right in this situation. You're just all about you. You're not about me, and you're certainly not about the person you're at war with. So what's God's take on this as we lose the battle in our heart? It's a strong take on it. Look at verse 4. His take is when we give in to these worldly desires that are waging war with God's will and his ways, we're committing what? Spiritual adultery. Not strong words. We're breaking faith with God. We're saying, God, you can't give me what I need. I got to go someplace else. We're breaking our covenant with God. We're unfaithful. We're being unfriendly. It's more than unfriendly, though. He says we're enemies because when we're friends with the world, we're enemies to God. We show that we don't love him, but we hate him. Whoa. You just hear that? When I give in to the desires of my heart, God says, you, you hate me. You've broken faith with me. You're not my friend. You're my enemy. Strong words. And it goes on to give the response that his spirit is jealous over us. It could be that God is jealous over his spirit within us. It could be translated that way, but more likely that his spirit that is within us is jealous for us. The scriptures tell us that God is a jealous God, and we hear that, and we go, what in the world? How could God be jealous? Because when we hear that word jealous, we think of petty jealousy, and we think of that as something that's wrong. And it is. But God is jealous for the honor of his name. And his, jealous, his jealousy is a protective love over you and me. He's jealous for the relationship. He's jealous that you and I would be in a place where we know his grace and we have his blessing. We experience his peace. We experience the abundance of life that comes only from him. And we're protected from all those things that would lead us to destruction. He's jealous. His spirit within us. So maybe James has given you something new to think about. Why do you fight? Why do you fight this week? Why have you been fighting for a long time? 
He says, it's not just a puddle. There's a big leak going on, and that deal's going on in our hearts. These insatiable desires that drive us to seek happiness and pleasure apart from God. These ineffective prayers where we try to cajole God somehow to, to help us get to what we want instead of bend our will to his. Our friendship with the world that makes us enemies with him. This is the stuff, he says, that it's the root of the problem. It's the root of the problem. Let me illustrate this in an illustration, a diagram that I found this week in an article by David Powelson called The Heart of Conflict. And he, he goes through this very passage with couples in marriage counseling and he kind of walks them through this diagram. Maybe this would be helpful for you. Maybe this is something you could do, the two of you, as you're trying to work things through. And he starts with the circle at the top. That would be the puddle, okay? The conflict, the situation. What are we fighting over? What are the issues here? And he starts putting them down. What, what are these things? Maybe one thing, usually it's several things. And he says, you know, when you get in conflict, what usually happens is, um, it's like a war. There's offensive things that we do to engage in this conflict, and there's some defensive things that we do. The offensive things are the ways that we attack the person, focusing on their fault, what they're doing wrong, in order to justify our actions and prove that we're, we're not to blame in this. It's not our fault. We're having conflict. And so we attack through anger, through blame, through threats, the scorecard. You know the proverbial scorecard? You ever had that pulled out on you? Now look, you've done this thing three times and I give you time and date when this has happened. You're always doing this. Oh yeah, all right. So you got that, you've got intimidation, you've got verbal aggression, all these things that we use to attack. Well, not only are we attacking, but oftentimes the, the favor is returned. Now we're under attack, so we need to start shoring up our defenses. So the defenses work like this. You know, I blame somebody else, not my fault. You know, then, then I shut down emotionally. I don't talk about it. I rationalize. I deny it. I'm stubborn. I'm unwilling at all to acknowledge any point of wrong in this. And then I've got this great strategy. It's, it's kind of this uh, sneak thing that I do. I, I know the button to push. Man, I know her button. Or I know his button. And I push it. And I provoke him. And now there's something else going on. And I'm just kind of a little sheltered from what was going on before. So we provoke and we run away and we brood. All these things are going on in this conflict as we respond to it. Now, that's the situation. It's, it's, uh, it's made even bigger when we realize it's not just one person doing it, but there's both of us doing it. And what James says is, underneath all of that are these hearts. These hearts. Your heart, their heart. And there's battles going on. And all it takes is one person to be losing the battle within for there to be conflict on the outside. That's all it takes. And he says, underneath all this conflict is the battle going on in our hearts over what we want. And when we don't get what we want, he says, we murder, we kill, we covet. What's he talking about? We go to war. It's not physically killing that he's talking about, although that sometimes happens. But he's talking about the metaphor of, of anger. hatred and there's conflict there and so what what james is saying what we need to do is i I need to get off this whole thing what do i want here and ask the question what does god want that's the key and when we both want what god wants guess what 
we're going to be going together to the same place, looking to God for the grace that we need to get there. This is maybe a helpful thing, and if you ever want to see this, actually you can download these slides on our website as you might want to just kind of work this out in a place of conflict that you have right now. So he's made it real clear. The reason we fight is because there's a deeper fight going on in our hearts, and until we win it there, we're never going to win it in our relationships. And then the whole passage turns in verse 6. Look down at verse 6. Because now he gives us the cure. He gives us what will turn it all around. What is our only hope here? It's God's grace. He gives us more grace. That is why the scriptures say God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now grace, when you hear that word, word association, you might think about, I think it's about praying at the table, right? It's what we do before we eat. We say grace. Not sure what it means, but it's, that's what we're doing. Well, grace is a free gift. It's getting something that we don't deserve. It's not like justice. That's where we get what we deserve. It's not like mercy, where we don't get what we deserve. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. Grace, when it's spoken of of God, is his goodness poured out on us. All the resources that we need to experience the abundance of life and joy that God has designed for us to experience with him. Grace, and it's an endless supply. It's grace upon grace. All that we need for the battle within and the battles without. Well, grace for what? Well, grace for that conflict, grace that I'd look at my heart, it's hard to do. Grace as I realize that I've been unfaithful to God. Grace as I understand that I need to take responsibility. Grace to acknowledge my wrong, to seek forgiveness. Grace to deal with my pride. Grace that would give me hope for a marriage relationship that's just threadbare, flatlined, dead. I don't think it'll ever go anywhere. It can't. It seems impossible. Grace comes in and says, there's hope. Not because of who you are. Because of who God is and what he gives. Grace upon grace. It's limitless. And yet the text says, actually, it is limited. It only goes out to whom? Who's it go out to in this text? The humble. Who doesn't it go out to? The proud. Why why, Why doesn't it go to the proud? Why wouldn't God say, man, I got grace for everybody. Because the proud person doesn't think he needs it. So it's not that God's grace isn't there for the proud person. It's there upon their change of mind that says, man, I don't have it as together as I thought. I can't do this on my own. And that's why for so many of us, we weren't opened up to the grace of God until we were so down. There was only one way to look, and it was up. And what we saw is a gracious God say, I've got grace for you. I've got mercy for you. I've got hope for you. I've got forgiveness for you. Grace. Grace, not for the proud. Grace for the humble. And so he goes on in verses 7 to 10 to say, let me tell you what this humility looks like. Let me tell you what it looks like. Because what you'll notice in the text is verse 6 talks about humility. Verse 10 talks about humility. Humble yourself before the Lord. When you see something like that going on in the scriptures, what you know is, hey, there's like a bracket deal going on here. There's humility in 6. There's humility in 10. That means this section is probably about humility. 
And the probably here is, it's probably describing what does it look like to humble yourself before the Lord? What does it look like to be humble and not proud? So we read in verse 7, here's what it looks like. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So he begins by saying, if you're someone who's humble, if you're someone who's going to humble yourself, it means that you're going to continually submit yourself to God. What does that mean? It means to acknowledge that he's God, that you're not, and you willingly, gladly place yourself under his leadership his care, his rule in your life. I'm not God, you're God, and I'm glad you know what's going on. I'm trusting you. I'm submitting to you. And Job says in 22, 21 this about submitting to God. Submit to God and be at peace with him. So the opposite of submitting to God is being at war with God. Stop warring with God. Let him be God. Let him be God of your life. And then he says this, in this way, prosperity will come to you. God says the very things you long for, desperately long for in life, come when you're rightly related to God. Submit to him. What does it look like to humble yourself? To resist the devil. When we resist the devil, we're rejecting his attempts to get us to serve ourselves, to follow these wrong desires. When we humble ourselves, we come near to God. How does that happen in our relationships? Well, those of you who um, maybe are engaged this morning or maybe you've been married for a while, you think back. How did you come together? Uh, You think about those of you who aren't married yet, you think about your closest friend. How, How did you guys come together? You spent time together. You talked, sometimes late into the night, opening up some of the things you've never shared with anybody else. That's how you came together. You spent time and you were honest and open with one another. We come near to God. And when we understand that we have been unfaithful to God, it takes great humility to come back to the one who's been faithful to you, the lover of your heart. You draw near as you let God speak to you in his word. You draw near as you, throughout the whole day, just keep talking to God. Draw near. Here's what I found. There's been one common ingredient to marriages that were on the verge of divorce that had a complete turnaround. One common ingredient in my 25 years of ministry. It's two people who've submitted to God, drawn near to him, and said, God, I, I want to do what you want. And when two people say they both want to do what God wants, there's hope for a marriage. The great thing, too, is for some of you going, well, that's no help to me, because right now, I want what God wants, but he doesn't. She doesn't. Well, Peter says, you know what's cool about that? You keep living your life faithfully t- to God, and you can win their hearts to God without even saying a word. Just by the nature of how you're living your life, God can do that too. And so the humble person is submitting. The humble person is resisting these desires in the enemy. The humble person is drawing near to God, drawing near to God, which speaks of a complete turning away from these desires and an acknowledgement of who we are. 
We turn away through confession, verse 5, washing our hands, purifying our hearts by God's forgiving grace and mercy. We draw near by being fully devoted. There's no more double-mindedness where we're not sure which camp we're in. There's no more riding the fence, so to speak. There's full devotion to Christ. Michael Jordan knew something about fully devoted. He was fully devoted to winning at any price, focused, a competitor like very few others. There's a great story in his book, Driven from Within, where he goes over the house of Fred Whitfields, who was the chief operating officer of the Charlotte Bobcats basketball team. Now, one of the things that happened that night is they decided to go out to dinner, and Jordan didn't have a jacket. That was required for the evening meal. And so Fred said, just go up in my closet, grab one of mine. So Jordan goes upstairs. He goes into Fred's big closet. He starts looking around, and there's a whole bunch of Nike things that, you know, Jordan gave him. He's feeling good about that. But then he sees this Puma stuff. What's this Puma stuff doing in Fred's wardrobe? Well, Fred had a relationship with Fred Sampson, who was a sponsor for Puma. Well, the next thing Fred knew, Jordan had gathered up all the Puma stuff, walked down to the living room, threw it down on a, on a couch there, ran into the kitchen, he got a butcher's knife, and he started cutting up all the Puma stuff. Walked it out to the dumpster, and he looked at Fred, and he says, don't let me ever see you wear anything but Nike again. There's no more ride in the fence. I'm a Nike guy. And if you're hanging with me in this organization, you need to be a Nike guy. And God says to us, James says to us, somebody who is humbling themselves is is a God guy, a God woman. Our devotion is wholeheartedly and singularly on Christ. Then he says, there's something else that marks the life of someone who's humble, and it ties in this whole thing of, of coming near, not just in confession and singleness of heart, but in this whole thing now that we have a change of mind. There's this whole new way of thinking about these desires that used to mean everything for us. Now we see it completely different. We understand how they were destructive in our own heart, in our own life, in our relationships before God, and we mourn over it now. We don't rejoice over it. We don't long for it. We have a complete change of mind. No more laughter. There's mourning. We regret these very things that we once longed for. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. This is what it means to humble yourself before God. And it has nothing to do with what he describes in verses 11 and 12. And we can only assume it's going on in the church. It's going on in this church And let's note this. Remember, these are people who are scattered because of their faith. They're persecuted. They're under intense trial. These people are slinking into their worship areas wondering, are are they going to be ratted on? Are are they going to have to go into into the authorities? Are they going to be whipped and beaten? Maybe something worse. There's intense pressure. And we ought not to miss it, that when you're in big-time trials, you're way more vulnerable to conflict in your relationships, in your own heart. Way more vulnerable. 
And what's happening here is the fighting that's broken out has brought, brought uh, this new level where they're attacking each other with these slanderous lies. And this has nothing to do with humility, but it's what's going on in the church. So we read in verse 11, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it, the law. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James says, what you're doing when you slander each other is you're taking a position where you're acting as if you're God. That's what he means by you're becoming a judger of the law. How so? Well, the law says love your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, when we slander our neighbor, we're not loving our neighbor. And so we're saying at this point, look, I don't have to follow the law. I don't have to be under the law and have this thing have any authority in my life. I'm over the law. And I choose what I want to do when I want to do it. And I don't want to do that. And so I've become like God, who is the only one who is the giver of the law. And I put myself in a very proud place, the place of God. And it happens in a second way. As I start making judgments on the person's character that I'm in conflict with. I'm not at all thinking about my heart, but man, am I labeling their heart. And I can tell you all the things. And in a flurry and heat of emotion, we can even make some things up. They would tear their good name down and bring destruction to their life and to your relationship. He says this has nothing to do, nothing to do with humility. So the proud heart, the heart that is centered on self, that wants all these things for our pleasure, is at the heart of conflict. And our only hope is to submit, to resist, to come near to God. And the only way we'll ever get there is by what? Trying harder? By God's grace. It's the only way. It's the only way. And here's, listen, it's how it worked out in our relationship. It's how it can work out in your relationship with God. The Bible says we're, we're, we're messed up. There, there's, there's a big breach in the relationship. It has nothing to do with God, did it? has to do with what we've done. We've gone our own way. So God, I don't need you. I don't think you're really good. I think there's other places that are going to be better for me. I don't want you telling me what to do. And your, your word has no bearing on my life. We broke the relationship. But it's grace. God's free gift of sending his son who never broke the relationship, who always submitted, who always resisted, who always was near God, who perfectly loved God, who perfectly loved his neighbor. The grace that is ours that brings peace with God is the grace that can bring peace in your marriage today, can bring peace in a relationship that just right now is out of order. That's our hope. And the stakes are huge because James is saying, look, it's bigger than your marriage. It's bigger than your extended family. It, it's, it's, it's your heart. It, it's the, your, your eternal future. Because Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons and daughters of God. And if we're people who are always at war with God and with others, it's, it's a dangerous sign that maybe we're not who we think we are. And the stakes for the church are huge because this is what Jesus prayed in John 17, his classic prayer. It's a prayer that you could say he prayed for Door Creek. Here's what he prayed. 
that all of them, that's us, that Door Creek may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He's praying that our unity would mirror the unity of the Godhead. Perfect unity. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why is the unity in the church so big? Because the text tells us that there's this huge apologetic going on so that when they see us living out our lives in unity, they believe the gospel, that God sent his son in this world not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to reconcile all things to himself in Christ. And when we can't get along with each other, the watching world says, why should I believe that you've got a message of peace for me and God when you guys can't even live it out in your own relationships? Why would I believe that? The stakes are huge. No wonder there's so many church fights. Because Satan's strategic. He understands the logic. No wonder there's so much going on in our Christian marriages. Because Paul says in Ephesians 5, this marriage is supposed to be a mirror to a watching world that says, this is what the gospel relationship looks like. Husbands, when we love our wives as Christ loves the church, dying for our wives, they start getting a picture for, man, that's a different kind of leader. It's because we serve a different kind of Lord, a Lord who would die for the people who rebelled against him. And when they see you, wife, living in relationship to your husband, yielding your life, respecting him, even as the church does to Christ and as Christ did to the Father, they go, what's going on here? It's a beautiful, mirrored picture of the original relationship. But when Satan can have his way and he spits on this picture of our marriage and he tears us apart, the watching world goes, these guys are no different than anybody else. There there is no wedding of the appetite. There's nothing that draws them to Christ. The stakes are huge. But so too is God's grace. Don't leave here this morning missing that it'll never get right in your marriage it'll never get right in your home until it's right in your heart and don't leave here this morning dragging your tail out of here going nothing will ever change because there's hundreds of stories here that'll tell you about how God can bring change nothing's impossible for him There is hope. And the scriptures say, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And you need to know that this church is committed to peacemaking. We teach a class on peacemaking. There'll be a couple of them this this coming year that we'll teach on peacemaking. We, We are involved actively in bringing peace and reconciliation. There's a great resource called the Peacemakers that we used to give members. You you come to any of the pastors, we're going to help you out. Find peace in your relationship with God, peace in your relationship in your homes, in your marriage with your roommates, wherever it is. So may God's grace give us victory here that we may know peace here. Let's pray. God of peace, grant peace to hearts that have been far from you as they receive your grace, the gift of your Son. Lord, your word tells us we're saved by that grace. It's not about our good works. 
It's about your son's good work on the cross. He made peace with you on our behalf when he took all the stuff that divided us from you and died for it in our place. Grant faith to believe that this is true, that they might know your grace and know your peace. Grant peace, Lord, in marriages that right now are flatline, hopeless, and all we've done lately is look at puddles. All the time and energy we've done is try to attack or defend. And Lord, your word is pointing us now to our heart. And that's a hard place to look right now. Give us grace to look and to find your forgiveness and to seek forgiveness and mercy and healing. Protect this church. Protect the marriages of this church from that which bring dishonor to your name. Lord, we really do seek to reach people who don't know you. And so may our peace help us do that to the honor of you, the Prince of Peace. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.